All right, so that out of the way, we'll uh, launch back on talking about In God We Trust, which is a series about money. We do this on average once a year, and the reason we do this once a year is because everybody has issues with money. Every single person in this room, myself included, uh, the, the, and you know, we, money is a funny, funny thing in human nature. We all have all kinds of preconceived ideas, beliefs, limiting beliefs, anxiety uh, connected with money and material things. That's part of the reason, I think, why Jesus spoke about money or taught about money more than he spoke of on any other subject in the Bible. Think about that, right? There's a reason for that. The reason for that is because we're all somewhat confused about money, have all kinds of issues with money. I do, I'm probably the, 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 like the poster child of people with problems with money because I was raised by a couple of Marxists, right? So, so and, and not only that, so my mom and dad were, were communists, their mom and dads were communists. Like I'm third generation, you know, uh, really damaged kid, right? So I had to rethink, <laughs> I had to rethink, relearn money, for many, many years now, and I'm still, I think, leaning into it. And, uh, and that's part of it, part of the background, right? Part of the, uh, another part of the background could be your, con- your specific context where you grew up. You might have grown up, let's say, wealthy, right? And you have a, a one set of money issues. You might have grown up poor, and you have another set of money issues. Uh, you, so there's, and everything in between, right? The, 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 the range is pretty wide. Uh, my, I'll give you a perspective I- into your lives from an outsider, for, just to give you context, right? To contrast that it's, there's such a variety of, of experiences in, out in, in this world. Um, so I grew up in the third world, and I grew up on three different continents, and uh, uh, for me, seeing so the American, the, the, just the normal American middle class experience was something that was sort of detached from reality for me, right? It was like in the movies, right? The Hollywood movies are everywhere, so you watch them. So for example, having a high school kid drive a car, for me, that was like a shocker. That was like, no way. Like, that's just not, that's not, that's somewhere in another universe, another reality that can happen, but not in my universe and my reality. Like, high school kids do not drive cars where I grew up, right? It just doesn't happen. Um, And then, like, the clothes they wore, the parties they went to, all the stuff that you see, we just, Deb and I just went to see Greece the other day with, uh, you know, and of course, that's a little bit of a fantasy, even for the American uh, thing, but it's really not that much of a stretch if you think about it, right? It's, 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 it's a compressed picture of, of what real life is in middle-class America. But for us, it was, it might have been, it could be Mars, you know, like life in Mars. That, that's, that's the detachment. Um, because I grew up, you know, with food rations, food, food shortages, you know, not a lot of clothes, not a lot of toys even at some point, you know. Uh, just no access to toys, like, right? you know, you, you made your toys, you don't buy your toys. That's the reality I grew up with. Right? Um, you have maybe a very, very basic set of clothing, and you, you, know, you, like, you mend your socks. Your mom mends your socks, for example, if you have holes in your socks. Um, you have access to some food. You're not hungry, which is a privilege in itself, because there are many people who are hungry. But for, for us, we had food, food shortages, food, food rations at some points in my life. 
and long lines, like hour-long lines for, for certain food items, which for us, it doesn't exist in America unless you're going to like a foodie restaurant and you want to pay an extravagant amount of money for this special place, right? Um, <laughs> but it's a very different reality, and I remember, you know, um, you sort of, you're aware of a lifestyle that Americans enjoy, uh, but it doesn't connect with you experientially until you get here, right? So, you know, I've made trips, I traveled internationally quite a bit, so, and I would go to conferences, and it sort of feels different because it's like you're staying in hotels, every downtown looks like every other downtown in a major world, until you start sort of uh, hanging out with Americans where they live, right? And I remember one of the first trips we had where I had that experience is, uh, Deb and I were already married, of course, she's American, and we came back from cr to Christmas, Christmas to the States. Uh, and her parents lived in Denver at the time, and um, it was, you know, and they're not, they're not rich. They had a, I think they had a townhome, right, babe? They had a townhome, middle class, Denver neighborhood, like just normal, 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 right? And I remember uh, sort of getting there, and uh, I, w I go on, on prayer walks, so in the morning I go and pray and walk around the neighborhood. And I remember having like this profound culture shock, and, and one, of them, one of the things that I noticed that all the lawns are green and, and manicured. And to me, that was like, who does that? Like, like in a, not in, a, in your yard, but in every yard. So I just walked around going, gosh, this is crazy. Like, I just remember being blown away, right? And there's no trash laying around, and that's shocking. You know, like there's no, you know, and I'm not saying like this, you live on a pile of trash in the third world, but there's trash laying around, right? There's trash laying around. There's just people drop something, piece of paper, whatever. And then I walk around this neighborhood and I don't see one piece of trash anywhere as I'm praying. And I'm going, what is this, right? <laughs> um, so anyway, it's, it's a culture shock. What's normal for us, it's a culture shock for others. It, so what I'm saying to you is that how we live is not normal. It's not normal geographically. It's, not, it's even more not normal uh, historically. It's just a blink of an eye in history. In most of humanity's history, for thousands and thousands of years worldwide, people have been poor. The majority of the people have been poor. Right? 90x percent have been poor. Um, and so, so it, doesn't, it doesn't go away, the culture shock. It's really funny that I've lived here for 18 years plus, and I still have these... You know how sometimes if you, people do drugs, they have flashbacks from the drug days? <laughs> I have culture shock flashbacks. <laughs> like, I really do. You know, like, I went to H-E-B a week ago, to a new H-E-B that was unfamiliar to me in, in, the new play, in the new sort of neighborhood we live in, and it's so nice and new and shiny, and I remember going, are we all rich? Like, everything is beautiful and fresh, <laughs> and there's tens of, tens of everything. And I, I just remember having like a flashback going, whoa, <laughs> walking around H-E-B, right? <laughs> we live in the lap of luxury. One of the first trips I, I, I made also, I think it was maybe the same trip to Denver, um, we went, Deb took me to Petco. And uh, she took me to Petco because we had a Yorkie uh, and, and she wanted to buy a, a gift for our dog, right? So she takes me to Petco. And, uh, and then, so we're walking around, and I'm, I'm, I'm in, in quiet shock, right? And then I, and I turn to her, and I go, 
Deb, you, is this a store just for pets? And she goes, yeah. And I literally stormed out of the, out of the store, just furious. Furious, furious, like fuming. Like I had to leave the store. So she follows me out, babe, what's going on? What, are you okay? And I'm like, do you realize people are hungry around the world? What the heck, you have a supermarket for pets. <laughs> and, um, and she asked, had to talk me off the ledge, right? <laughs> you know? And, uh, but I remember, I was actually f- angry. Like angry, angry, angry. I couldn't stay there, right? Since then, obviously, I've healed, and uh, I go to Petco all the time, right? Uh, I've assimilated. <laughs> uh, but my, my point is this, is that our life, it's so normal. We live, all of us here in this room, we live in the lap of luxury. And it's normalized, and we actually complain quite a bit in, even, because it's all relative, right? Like there's always someone who has more, uh, some things you want to do that are, you can't do right now because of your limited resources, that sort of stuff. Um, and the, what I, the reason I tell you this sort of this backdrop story is because... The, the life that we enjoy here in the, in the States, and in the West in particular, um, was actually sparked by a cult- cultural shift that comes from Christianity, by faith. It was sparked by the Protestant Reformation that basically uh, exposed um, millions and millions of people t- directly to the teaching of the Bible, because before that it was really more intermediaries, priests had to interpret it for the people. Um, and the inventing of the printing press allowed people to have Bibles at home and study the scriptures themselves. So it exposed a large population. It's sort of this you know, alignment of the stars in the West to what the Bible teaches about calling, about work, about money. And people interpreted it, and then it became cultural a shift. So there's a lot of studies that show the, what, what people are calling the Protestant uh, work ethic as being one of the principal sources of the rise of the West in wealth. Now, I'm telling you this because some, somewhere on the, ro- on the way from those sort of tectonic shifts in culture and what we experience as, is really the fruit, the harvest of that, although we can't really necessarily pinpoint and, and engineer how it all came about. Somewhere along the way, there's other cultural shifts came about and um, the spiritual side of money was divorced in culture from money. So money here, God here. There's a separation between the secular and the sacred, culturally speaking. So we, even in the church, very seldom go to scripture to learn about money, the nature of money, the nature of business, the nature of human ac- commercial activity. We, we go to the Bible for marriage. We go to the marriage for uh, Bible for meaning, for relief, for, for soothing, right? For prayer. We learn all kinds of things in scripture. Most of us don't dig into scripture and learn about money. We just don't. Somewhere along the way, we lost our way. So the reason I, w- I tell you all of this is because I think a lot of our anxieties just like in the times of Jesus, since the beginning of time, come from our mishandling and misunderstanding and misexperiencing money as something that is not spiritual. So, 
you can be a faithful Christian, you can love Jesus, you can love people, you can pray, you can have your quiet time, you can even tithe, right? You give 10% of everything you make to the church, you give above and beyond that, you give to the poor, you give to missions, and oh, you're doing all of that stuff, and you, but you don't study and learn and change money, what that, what's that make you? It can make you a faithful Christian, it can make you a tither, but it can also make you a broke tither. And I don't think you want that, and I don't think God wants that from you, right? So we should lean in and include money into the things that we take from Scripture into our lives and implement those things. So today, what I wanted to give you is sort of this, this high-level overview of lessons from the most wealthy person who've ever lived, which is King Solomon. And he talks about money all the time, right? Uh, what I want to do, should I just grab a mic? Because it sort of gets in and out. Um, uh, I should probably just grab a mic. I'll grab a mic because it's interrupting, I think. Um, so, and the reason I'm going to give you this sort of overview is just to whet your appetite, to get you excited about studying out money in the Bible because it can affect your life. It can affect the way you give you exist in the in the world the way you serve right so so this isn't by no means meant to be like this exhaustive thing you walk away here transformed it's really to get you excited about something right are you ready for this okay so the first scripture i want to share there's a bunch of them is uh, is the very beginning of the reign of solomon he's this young man he inherits the kingdom of israel and he basically starts sort of doing things, just his first moves. And in one of his um, times of worship, God appears to him, makes himself present, and basically says, Solomon, ask me, what do you want? You know, what do you want? Which is a, a question Jesus asked a lot from the people he talked about as well. And here's what um, Solomon answered. He says, um, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright and in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him, given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, Lord my God, you, may, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern his great people, this great people of yours? The Lord was pleased that, uh, that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and you not long, uh, not, not for a long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment and administering, administering justice. Sorry, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so that well, uh, so that there will be have any more like you. Bad reader. Um, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. So that is the question. This is the request. Imagine if you had like, you know, the three wishes, right? That's sort of the proverbial thing. And, 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 and 
the, the, what moved God's heart is that Solomon asked for the one thing that matters most, which is understanding of how the world works. And God said, because you asked for this, I will give you all the other stuff. And I present to you the possibility, and this is my interpretation, is that not only was a supernatural endowment of God to Solomon in reward for his heart of, ser- of desiring to serve his people, it was also, also a natural sequence of events that happens with everybody. If you are looking for money, you might even get money, but you will lose your soul. That's, the, that's what Jesus says, right? You can gain, what good is it to gain the world? But if you look for how the world really works, you actually might do better financially as well. And that's the whole point of what I'm trying to present to you today as a, as a scope of teachings from, the king, from King Solomon to give you just a taste of it so you can pursue it, maybe think about how to develop a discipline about learning about money. Um, here's the thing. It is natural to see money as scarce, right? It's natural for all of us. We're in the 1% of the wealthiest people in the world, and it's natural for us to see money as scarce and to not be generous. To not be generous is a natural state because you see money as scarce. It is supernatural to see money as plentiful because of your view of the Bible, of God, how the world really works. It is supernatural to be generous. It is supernatural to be generous. That's why we admire generous people. Why? Because it's not natural. If everybody was, was generous, we wouldn't admire people for that. We admire people who are generous. We admire people who are selfless. So the shift needs to happen at the very core of who you are and how you see this world, right? Okay, so I'm going to give you very high-level principles. Are you ready? It's like rapid-fire stuff. You ready? Okay, take notes if you need to. Explore it later. Here's the first one. Seek wisdom, and you'll find and you'll seek God's blueprint of life, which is the very beginning of what we see in Solomon's uh, journey. In Ecclesiastes 7, I'm going to point out just two, two scriptures, 19 and 25, two verses. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. That's what um, Solomon says. He's basically saying wisdom is the superpower. Wisdom is the leverage for life. If you get to the, to the core, the blueprint of how things are, it changes everything else, right? So wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than ten rulers in the, in the city. In verse 25 it says, So I turned my mind to understand, to investigate, and to search out wisdom and the scheme of things. I love that word. The scheme of things, the very nature, the essence of things. One thing, as I mentioned before, the reason why a lot of us even are faithful Christians and we're faithful tithers, but we're also broke tithers, is because we don't understand the scheme of money. We don't study it. We don't go to the Bible for it. We don't pray about it. We don't incorporate that as a spiritual discipline. So one thing, the first lesson, the core lesson, if you don't remember anything else, seek wisdom, everything else will follow, right? That's the big leverage. Here's another one. Enjoy God's gift, gifts, and infuse joy in everything you do. In Ecclesiastes 8.15, it says this. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. The joy will accompany them. 
in their toil all the days of the life because God has given him under the sun. Now, some of us, I mean, I remember interpreting that scripture as, well, that's a vain scripture. Eat, drink, and enjoy, right? That's very sort of, you know, self-centered. I, I present to you that they may, they may be another layer to the scripture because he, what he does is he mentions that if the joy doesn't, it's not a vain self-centered joy. It's not a seeking of pleasure. It's an enjoyment and an acknowledging of God's gifts and then infusion of, God's, of this joy into the toil of life. You see the difference there? It's not a, it's not a pursuit of, of pleasure. It's, a, it's, an, it's an acknowledgement of who you are in front of God and then you infuse that joy into what you do. What does that do for you as, a, as somebody who is, lives in the marketplace? I'll tell you what. First, it gets you connected to the very, the very core of who you are, who God is, and your identity that gives you joy. Next step, whatever you do, you do it with joy. Are you a more valuable asset to any marketplace if you're a joyful person? Yes, you are. Will you make more clear decisions? Yes. Will you be more optimistic? Yes. Will you be more adventurous? Yes. Will you experiment more? Yes. Why? Because you infuse joy, even if it's toil. And toil is an across-the-board thing that has given, that's promised to us. It's part of the curse in Genesis, right? Especially for the dudes. Right? Women, childbirth, dudes, toil. Toil is not going to go away. But if you infuse joy that comes from a deep connection with God, the toil changes. Okay, next. Master new skills, serve more people. Ecclesiastes 10.10. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, rather, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. You know, uh, we, we fear downturns in the economy, changes, political unrest, all that stuff. The recession is coming, the recession is coming, you know, inflation is coming. All these things that are outside of our control. You want to be recession-proof? Get skills. That's it. Get more skillful in what you do. Dedicate more time, more effort to be one of the best at what you do. And then do other things. D get new skills. Are you the best already? Add another skill that it's adjacent to your skill. That will make you res recession proof. No recession can overcome th the need for the thing that you do and you offer to the world. Right? Next, diversify efforts and sources of income. This is a very modern sounding thing. Ecclesiastes, Solomon taught that from the very beginning. Ecclesiastes 11, one or two. Invest in many ventures, ship your grain across the sea. After many days you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures. Yes, in eight, you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. That is completely timeless uh, advice, isn't it? You wanna be recession uh, free? In get multiple sources of income. Why? Because you don't know what disaster is going to bring. Right? Um, structure your time for work. Ecclesiastes 11.6. Sow your seed in the morning, and at the evening let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Now, there's really cool teaching in Jewish tradition about that, and, and a lot of it has to do, like if you, uh, what we don't talk about enough is the Sabbath is a time of rest, so it's a structure in time for doing nothing and acknowledging the presence of God, his provision, the very source of everything we have. But six days, you work at it with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. 
Whatever you do, do it like you do, you're doing it for the Lord. It's a structured approach to work. Have you ever, like, do you, how often do you experience a day, even in, in your job, where you go, you know what, I, didn't, I did a lot, but I didn't get anything done. Have you experienced that in your life? Right? Unproductive work. And part of the problem there is that your time is not structured well for impact. And that's, I believe that's, what's, what, uh, that's what Solomon is doing here in saying that. Okay, here's another one. This is a scandalous, mind-blowing thing that I think all of us need. Selling is serving. Selling is serving. Proverbs 11.26, it says here, People curse the one who, who hoards grain, but they pray God's blessing on the one who is willing to sell. Why is it not saying who is willing to, not to, to give it away? That is completely countercultural to you and I. And it's fascinating, and that's part of the reason why we're broke, relatively speaking. I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. We think getting paid for something make it a, makes it a selfish activity. That it's make, at the very core, it makes this, what you're doing professionally, a selfish activity that doesn't benefit the other person. And the truth is, you are blessing people with your expertise and your work. And somehow we're all broken. I don't know how that all happened. I think it's Satan, right? As a matter of fact, when somebody, uh, let, let me give you a, like a high level example. You know, Bill Gates, right? Uh, Bill Gates give, uh, decided, he's one of those guys who decided to give 90% of, of the money he's ever made, he's one of the richest men in the world, to charity. And we praise him for that, right? We go, wow, dude, generous, admire, right? The same Bill Gates, he's gonna, he, he it has and will help millions of people in extreme poverty. Uh, he will tackle big problems with that. But before he, he decided to give that money away, he gave tens of thousands of jobs to people all over the world who provided for their families, gave education to their kids, um, provided services, fueled whole industries with software, uh, uh, raised economies. And none of that is mentioned as a good thing he did. Why? Because of this. Because this weird thing we have about money. I would argue that if you compare the work he does for charity and the work he did through Microsoft, it doesn't even compare. The work he did for Microsoft has higher impact on more people than the work he did for charity. But the perception of it is the opposite. The perception of it is that when he does his work for Microsoft, he is an exploiter, a capitalist, a hoarder, you know? And as we even have a term for that in, in modern America, is that when somebody wants, it's done, and they've made their money, and they, they are now ready to, to shift focuses and give where? Give back. What does that imply? It implies that all of their lives, they've taken. Is that true about you? No, it's not. Of course not. People pay you for your services, for your professional, for, for your expertise, because you're blessing them. Selling is serving. And if we get, just get over that one thing, your life will change, and your relationship with money will change. Selling is serving. 
people are you beating people over the head like forcing them to give them give your the, your salary like you like torturing your boss inflicting pain threatening him no people are giving you money why because your service is more valuable than the money you receive you're a blessing on your workspace and that's actually fascinating that that is the very essence a big part of the what they call the protestant work ethic is the spiritualizing of all activity as under God, giving glory to God and serving fellow men. And that's what got us as a society in the place that we're here right now. So this is just a glimpse. You can go in all kinds of rabbit holes from here, right? Okay, here's another one. Giving comes before receiving. Proverbs 28, 27 says, those who give to the poor will lack nothing. Have you heard, have you listened to this? Go to those who give to the poor will lack nothing, but those who close their eyes to them receive many curses. That's a spiritual law. You give before you receive. And it has nothing to do with sort of these, you know, um, distorted teachings that treat the church or God as an ATM machine, right? Like if you give this blessing, you sow this seed, this, these are all, that's not what we're talking about here. This is the spiritual God's law that if you're generous as a person, financially generous as a person, you will gain more in the long run. It's as true as gravity. And if you believe that, you will, you will, live, you will give according to conviction, not, about, not according to, hey, I have an extra few bucks laying around here. It's a, it's a foundational shift in the way you give. You give before you receive. Now, if you start believing that, start acting that way, life, in rea the reality of life will reinforce that, and you, you give more, and you give more, and give more. So anyone who is a generous giver will tell you this, that same thing. There's a profound correlation between generosity and well-being. Profound correlation. Here's another one. This is a little bit more controversial, but I'll give you some context before you go, oh, wow, that's, that's intense. Money flows from the sinner and is handed to the righteous. This is, what, this, this is what Solomon's saying, okay? Ecclesiastes 2.26, it says, To the person who pleases God, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. Okay? That's what he's saying, okay? This is exactly, I'm not interpreting this. This is exactly the text. Okay, let me give you a little bit of context. First of all, this is actually what happened with, Mo, with, uh, with uh, Solomon. The reality, that's, that was his life. You know, I'll, we'll, we'll unpack that just a little bit later in the next scripture. But people from all over the world, non-believers, non-Jewish, non-followers of Jehovah, God, would come to Israel, to Jerusalem, and give him money. You know? That's, that was his reality. So you can just leave it there as the very, the big, but there's another principle in there, right, as well. There's probably, maybe people from other countries are not going to come and like lay, lay like bricks of gold at our doorstep. Probably not happening. But, but we can read into this a little bit more, I think. And here's what we can read into this. If you know the scheme of things in the words of Solomon, if you know how the world really works, you will attract more success because you're going to hurt yourself less and you're going to bless other people more. And that automatically attracts more demand for what you do. Right? 
So money will flow to you if you're a better professional, if you're well-rounded as a professional. There's whole, all, all kinds of distortions even in career tracks where people follow just this one level of career of what they call success at the cost of faith, at the cost of relationships, marriages, families, friendships, and what they do after they do that, they will succeed for a while in a very narrow field, and they will crash and burn because that's not natural for a human being to be divorced, hated by people, or, or with no people to love and share life with, and they will do this and this. And when that, so this happens, they accumulate money, that's the toil, and what this happens is they're handing their money to somebody else who has their act together. Does that make sense? So on a broader level, if you have your act together, you might not be a Bill Gates, but you'll probably do better. And some of, that, some of the economic flows that are, appear, that, that are sort of in the hands of people who are just ungodly, unrighteous, they will end up in your hands. Is that, is that logical? Does that make sense at all? Like in some, in some, on some level, I think that's, that, that's exactly what he, what, what applied to him also applies to us. Like I'm, and I've been sort of the artist who burns all of his money, doesn't know money at all. The worldview is messed up, relationships are messed up, and, and like, like money is like water, just, it just goes away, right? So I was, I was that guy, right? <laughs> Hopefully I'm not that guy anymore. Okay, so this is just a few sort of moments and insights into the, just the treasure that we have in scripture. Uh, here's the outcome. So let me give you another. It's just an insight. There's so much more about how Solomon, Solomon did and what the changes he, he produced in his, in his kingdom. But I'm going to read you just one episode to illustrate. In 1 Kings 10, verses 1 to 10, it says this. When the queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon and his relationship to the Lord, she came to test Solomon with hard questions. Arriving at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, with camels carrying spices, large quantities of gold and precious stones, she came to Solomon and talked with him about all that she had on her mind. Solomon answered all of her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. When the queen of Sheba saw all of the wisdom of Solomon and the, uh, at the, and the palace he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, the attending servants in their robes, his cupbearers, the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the, of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. She said to the king, the reports I heard, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true, but I did not believe those things until I came and saw it with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told to me. It's, it's better than she thought, right? In wisdom and wealth, you have exceeded the report I heard. How happy your people must be. How happy your officials who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you in the throne of Israel, because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, large quantities of spices and precious stones. Never again were so many spices brought in as those the queen of Sheba gave to the queen of Solomon. One, before I tell you sort of the numbers here, uh, one thing to, to mark, she was not a conquered nation. She was not a conquered queen. She was not a vassal. She was not paying uh, what is due by a vassal to a king. This is a separate queen, completely free, and she was giving that money to Solomon from gratitude, honoring the, the man who knows how life works. Now, how much is 120 talents in gold and current money? $230 million. 
just in gold, right? Another scripture says that he received 666 talents a year in just gold from people like Sheba. That amounts to $1 billion per year, just in gold, plus trade, plus business, plus tribute. The current, look, one of the iconic sort of rich people in our age is Elon Musk, right? And I think because we have this historic snobbery, we think that everything before our age was nothing, you know, we think that's like, whoa, that's unprecedented, that's crazy, that's even not even fair, right? People shouldn't have that kind of money. So he's worth how much? $262 billion. That's Elon Musk. Translated into modern money, Solomon's net worth, which is when the population of the country was a very fraction of what we have right now. Imagine, we have now six or seven billion people on, on, on in the world. In the, in the times of Solomon, it was a tiny, tiny fraction of the human resources to produce kind of wealth. He was worth 2.1 trillion. So Elon Musk is in kindergarten <laughs> compa compared to Solomon, right? Um, and obviously Solomon, being a human being as he was, and very, very transparently open about this, failed epically as well. For the same reason we fail at money and fame and success. And he was he's famously, he philosophically and, and very vulnerably expressed many, many times in, in, in his writings that all of this is meaningless. You know? And then he lands at the end of, of the book of Ecclesiastes at the very core of what he's learned after this epic journey of, that, of unprecedented success. Unprecedented before and after, may I add. He says this, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Now all has been, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. Like imagine having $2.1 trillion, hundreds of wives, building palaces, conquering uh, empires, having queens come and give you, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars in, in, you know, in, in gold, and experience all of that, and then concluding the one thing that's the most important in life. It's just to worship God. It's the highest value. That is the very source of how life works. That's the treasure. All of these treasures, the 2.1 trillion, trillion they are not the treasure. The treasure was that one prayer in the beginning. Give me wisdom so I can serve your people. That was the treasure. Jesus echoes that in Matthew 6, 31. Because, he, because this angst this anxiety, this worry, this complicated relationship with money that we all have, right? It never goes away. And so he redirects our thoughts again and again and again. And it's as relevant as it was in the times of Solomon, in the times of Jesus, and our times right now. He says this, do not worry, um, do not worry saying what shall we eat or sh what shall we drink? Like, think about this, I'm gonna pause this for a second. The people sitting in this room at the, in the 1% of the wealthiest people in the world now and in history, how often do you think, do you worry about money? Raise your hand. Do you worry about money regularly? It's pretty, it's pretty amazing, right? How persistent that is 
even though relatively speaking, historically and geographically, we're at the very top. Why is that? Because it's not really a, a, it's not how much you have and how much you can have, but it's the very nature of the human heart. And Jesus speaks to that right now to you. And it's as relevant as it was to people who lived a pr- essentially a lifestyle of subsistence living. You know, day to day to day. He says this. Do not worry saying what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear. For the pagans run after these things. I'm a pagan. I have moments of paganism in my life. I make an idol of this money. I make an idol of my, of my concerns. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. He knows. It's not that you don't need them. It's not that it's sinful to even ask for more. You should ask extravagantly of your father in heaven. And he knows what you need. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all of these things will be given to you as well. And I think what we, even our minds, in our guilty minds, and our weird minds, we go, seek the kingdom. Yes! All of these things will be given Ah, let's just underemphasize that. It's right there. All of these things. It's a scary thought. I, have, I can want all kinds of things that are probably not good for me. But he says, ask. Don't be a pagan. Don't chase after them. God already knows. You're fine. You're beloved. Son and daughter of God. He already knows what you need. Seek his kingdom. Say that prayer that Solomon said. I just want to serve people. Give me wisdom. Don't give me money. Give me wisdom. And what he did, what Jesus, is, he's echoing exactly what happened with Solomon here. He asked for wisdom, seek the kingdom, and all of these things were given to him according to God's glory, his generosity, his goodness, his love, in addition to what you're seeking. And this is, uh, I want to leave you with this as we prepare our hearts for communion. This is not just a statement of trust. This is a reframing of worldview. I want you to to really think and let it sink in. This is not just an expression, God, I trust you. You, you. You dress the flowers in the field. Yes, it's that. But it's also a reframing of worldview is that you put yourself from the outside of God's goodness and provision and wealth, the wealth in the sense that he owns everything. From the outside to the inside of that, as a favorite son and daughter of God. And you do not run after these things like the pagans do. You do not worry, you're not anxious. You're asking freely, generously, and you study his will for your life, including your commercial activity, which is eight hours a day for most of us every single day. What you do in the marketplace is a blessing. Treat it as a blessing. Include it into the kingdom. Seek the kingdom in your work. Do not separate money and work and the stuff that Satan basically is trying to undermine in your heart as something that is unimportant, even unrighteous sometimes. 
included in gets seek the kingdom and all these things will be given to you um before we pray you know i want to give you a little bit of that inscription in god we trust which is the title of the, of the sermon is of the series you know um the, the backstory of how that showed up in american money is really fascinating uh, it was actually voted by um um uh, not voted by signed into law by eisenhower president eisenhower in 1955, so it's recent. It's actually relatively recent. This uh, in God we trust on American money, and it's I think also demonized. Going really, you have in God we trust on money, and I can tell you the people that think that way are thinking like pagans. The very source of of this inscription uh, on American money came from uh, this representative from the state of Florida. His name is Ch uh, Charles Bennett. And he introduced it to the house as something to remind, to basically as a constant reminder, that's what he, the, the heart behind it was. It's, it was to be a constant reminder uh, that the nation's political and economic, economic futures were tried, were tied to its spiritual faith. That was the heart behind the inscription, is that he wanted to remind Americans that our economic futures are directly connected to the faith and not separated. And the reason why he was doing that is because there was this rise of, um, of communism in the world as becoming very popular and it's, that's a very materialistic ideology. That's nothing to do with God at all. And everything is about the material. And what he was trying to do is like, no, no, no. This, this country was founded in the kingdom, with kingdom values. And obviously there's all kinds of evil people, all kinds of things, evil things have been done in the country. But what he's saying is that as a nation, our economic future is intrinsically connected to our faith. And we want to not forget that. That's, let's print it on the money so we don't idolize this thing. How amazing is that? And how unique is that? That's unique. Like I don't, I've, I've never heard of a story like that on a national level of people leaning in this way, right? And I present to you that's the, the reason why some people, and it's not the majority, but some key people leaned in this way early on in the, in the history um, of not only America, but the West in general, is the very reason why this is the wealthiest civilization in the history of humanity. Um, it's just, it's amazing to think of it that way, right? So somebody like myself who came from a different civilization can visit and go, Petco, really? That's crazy. And I can be either angry or critical about this, or I can be in awe of that. And I think now, you know, as I sort of heal from those things, I'm in awe of that in the same way that the Queen of Sheba was in awe when she visited Solomon. Um, so I want to leave you with a couple of questions as we pray and meditate on this. Um, two, just two questions. What are your money issues? If you were to be honest with yourself. I'm not, note that I'm not saying if you have money issues. What I'm saying is, what are they specifically? <laughs> you know? And sometimes we just live our life and we just don't think deeply enough about these things. What are they exactly? What are your blocks? What are your beliefs? What are your limiting beliefs with money? And then the second question is, will you seek his kingdom and his righteousness? And by that I mean, will you not let it just be there? 
as a limiting belief. But pursue it. Be Solomon. Ask for wisdom. If you have a pain point, something you're confused about, something you're unclear about, something that causes you great anxiety, will you seek his kingdom and righteousness? Because I promise God will clarify those things to you. And it's, we're all on a journey, right? I'm on a journey. I have all kinds of issues with money. And I'm getting better and better and better. Very incrementally. It takes years. Even if you pay attention, it takes years. And what I want to give you is a vision. Is that, okay, where's just a speck of sand in the, in the world and a speck of sand even in the kingdom of God. We're just a little corner of the kingdom that it's beautiful, wonderful. But we can have completely outsized impact if more of us lean into these things. If more of us actually seek the kingdom first and his righteousness. Because it transforms our economic life. It transforms our giving life. And the giving life will transform the things that we can do in this world. Both locally and globally. Let's pray. Mm-hmm.